Welcome to Bring Back V10s, the new podcast brought to you by The Race, where we take a trip down memory lane to some classic stories from F1's history. We're back for episode two, and thanks to everyone that has got in touch already with your feedback about our new series. And remember, if there's a topic you'd like us to talk about from 1989 to 2005 in F1, get in touch with at WeAreTheRace on Twitter or email ask at therace.com. Now, in our first episode, we set the scene for everything to unravel between Alain Prost and Ferrari in 1991. But at the end of that episode, things were looking quite good, with Ferrari's new 643 challenging for victory on its debut at the French Grand Prix. Unfortunately, that was about as good as it would get. Back with me to see this story through to its conclusion are ex-F1 driver and Sky Sports F1 pundit Karun Chanduk. Good to be back. Thanks, Karun. And F1 journalist Ed Straw is back with us as well. Gents, thanks for coming back for episode two. Glad we didn't lose you after episode one. As we were setting the scene through episode one, it didn't look that bad. There were a few occasional cracks, but we sort of talked about the fact that it didn't all look too bad in the summer of 91. So are we looking forward to getting our teeth into the real breakdown of this relationship now? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, when we got to Magnicore, Ferrari seemed to be competitive again. And, and, you know, the car's only a week old and they've already started a challenge for victory. So, you you know, all the ingredients are there for a, for a, you know, a good second half of the season. They're probably too far behind to challenge for the championship. But Prost is probably sitting there thinking, I can win three or four races by the end of the year. It's amazing how quickly it all turns around, because even though in the previous episode we talked about all these conditions, etc., still going into the first part of 91, the main worry for everyone was would Prost fall out with a Lacey, because a Lacey was the, the coming man, but that was just kind of an irrelevant, irrelevant topic. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a fascinatingly broad story that can't be looked at in isolation. And actually, as we talked about in the first episode, it, it reveals quite a lot about where F1 was going at that stage as well. So it's not just that. It's not just about Alan Prost and the team. It's uh, it's telling a, a much wider story. Now, we've introduced our guests there, and as an amateur podcast host, I should probably introduce myself as well. My name is Glenn Freeman, and we've talked there about Manicor and a good debut for the new car in France. And at the end of our last episode, we explained that potentially the new French Grand Prix home, as it was back then, was an outlier of a circuit because it was so smooth. And Ferrari go to Silverstone for the British Grand Prix for the next race, and things don't go quite so well there. But Ferrari puts that down to the fact that, as we mentioned before, it missed the pre-British Grand Prix test with its new car. So not too many concerns yet. And then we get to Germany, and the main story to come out of the German Grand Prix is that Alain Prost and Ayrton Senna are at it again. Now, for those of you who don't remember, they end up battling on track, almost banging wheels a few times, and in the end, Senna... In Prost's eyes, shoves Prost down the escape road at one of the chicanes and Prost ends up parking behind a cone, which anyone who's watched the Senna film will remember that's the famous driver's briefing scene where Jean-Marie Belleste is obsessing with the fact that drivers have to park behind this cone if they go off at one of the chicanes. I think Prost ends up behind that cone, waits a while and stalls the car or the car breaks down. And when he gets back to the paddock, he lets fly against Senna and it's the first flare-up really we've had between Prost and Senna since Suzuka 1990 which decided the championship and this is what Prost said at the time and this was all over the season review the race coverage in the media at the time he says I don't understand the way Senna goes racing it's not acceptable to use intimidation like he does every time I got up with him he moved over on me weaving is one thing when someone is behind you but not when they are alongside he has to understand that there are some days where you don't have the fastest car and people are going to be quicker than you. 
FISA, that's the governing body, never does anything about it. They fine other guys in a way that is not correct, but they never do anything about him or the other top drivers. And this was the key line, which is, is replayed quite a lot, actually. If he gets in my way again, I'll just have to push him off. I won't back off for him. That's the only thing that will make him understand. Both the drivers get in a bit of trouble and they get hauled up by FISA for this and Prost gets a suspended one-race ban, I think. Is this one of those kind of lost Prost-Senna spats because it just it pales in significance to all the fallouts they had when they were actually battling for world championships? Yeah, I think so, because you know it didn't have the intensity of a championship battle, really. So in some ways, it didn't really matter. It was considering the drama of 89 and 90, you know, this was such a small blip. I think it's just gone below everyone's radar, hasn't it? I think it was one of those signs of frustration as well for, for Prost, because, yeah, Senna was being obviously a little bit a little bit aggressive in his defence, but also if you, if you if you look at the the manoeuvre, it's not really a percentage play from Prost. He'd also spun off, uh, he'd also spun in the British Grand Prix previously as as well. So I wonder if, for a driver of impeccable judgment like Prost, I wonder whether there's there's some signs of the frustration that things aren't going well inside Ferrari. That the Silverstone mistake, then putting himself in that position at Hockenheim, because Senna doesn't completely shove him off. And I know it's a wider thing; it was the the wider battle. But I, I don't know. What did you make of that one, Karine? Do you think uh, that one? I mean, it wasn't Suzuka ninety, was it? It was a, it was one of those ones where you kind of he's trying to go around the outside into chicane. He's not going to get around anyway. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, it, it's to to give it modern context. I don't think it's one that would even go to the stewards. Really, you know, they didn't touch. They didn't make contact. You know, it's not even as close as Leclerc and Lewis got into the second chicane at Monza last year. So, yeah, it's just one of those things. But you know, I think it's part part of their ongoing frustration and and saga with each other. Really, in many ways. Yeah, I, I can imagine that as soon as he was getting a little bit irritated with Senna, there, there was that belligerence. Turns out, you know, although it's one of those funny things that actually Prost, he's, he's renowned as a really smooth driver, intelligent driver, but he could pull off a pass as well. So I imagine that was part of him that's saying he really wanted to put one over Senna there as well. And ultimately, I think as you said, Karine, that the championship wasn't really going to happen. So Prost probably thought it was a good chance to kind of get a little tick in the box ahead of a hoped for championship battle in that in that 92 season he was, uh, he was signed up for. Excellent bit there of Ed watching that incident back on his phone and trying to talk about it without uh, mentioning the fact that, oh, I'm just watching this as we actually talk about it. I must admit, the reason I looked at that is Prost's quote about it. I sort of thought, I remember that being slightly more gentle than that. And that's why I wanted to look at it again. I thought, no, actually, it's not It's not too bad. So it's it's always the danger when you're talking about things this long ago. Your mind can play, play tricks on you. So I wanted to double check. That's how thorough we are on Bring Back V10s. And I think, you know, from Senna's perspective, he probably didn't mind if Prost is wound up because Prost isn't a problem, as you said at this point, Karun. They're not having a championship fight and he's just managed to annoy him again. So... Not too many problems from Senna's side, but things are breaking down off track now between Prost and Ferrari. This is another bad result uh, after a slightly disappointing British Grand Prix. And Prost takes aim at the Italian media. He references the French Grand Prix and he says, After Manicourt, they criticised me for not winning. If I could lead the race, why could I not win it? All year long, they've been writing that it's my fault Ferrari is not winning and this is getting on my nerves. I don't read that stuff anymore. Well, it sounds like you do. But in the factory, everyone reads it. The press has an incredible influence in Italy and on the team as well, more than I believed would be possible. 
Then in the media again, he's criticised this time by Umberto Agnelli, uh, brother of Fiat President Gianni, who uh, questions Prost's motivation. So Prost takes aim at him as well. And he says, I have a contract with Ferrari for next year, but I don't want anyone to feel obligated to keep me. If Umberto or people like him want me to stay or don't want me to stay, I am ready to quit Ferrari. It would be a shame because I feel there have been very positive changes here with the management. And he says, if Claudio Lombardi had been at Ferrari last year, we would have won the championship. We lost it because of Fiorio. Now, I mentioned in episode one that when Fiorio left, Prost was very diplomatic. But now he's on the attack and he's reminding everyone that they, well, hate each other. Um, so Gianni Agnelli does come out in support of Prost. He apologizes for his brother's comments and tells Prost to ignore them. And Ferrari chairman Piero Fasaro says that they know Prost can win the championship if the team gives him the right car. So the people we think with the real power at Ferrari at this point, Ed, are trying to calm everything down with Prost. They're clearly aware that he's very upset, but it would appear that in the corridors of power at Maranello, they're not quite yet looking like they want to get rid of him. Yeah, I think it's it's heading down this trajectory towards them parting company, but obviously they still know they've got a high-caliber driver in Alain Prost. Obviously, Alacy's come in, and actually he's not really set the world on fire. He's, he's been fine, but you know he hasn't he hasn't been uh, been outperforming Prost uh, in qualifying all the time as some expected him to. So they know what kind of classy driver they've they've got there, and there's all these things going on, like Prost that comment where he talked about how important the media is. I remember in, uh, Ross Braun has talked about this in the past. In fact, I think it's in uh, the total competition, but he did with Adam Parr. He says that when he went to Maranello, he found that they'd still distribute the press clippings around the factory. And he, he put a stop to that because the press became such a big thing. And you can very quickly go from hero to villain in the Italian press. And obviously the, the Imola thing, uh, spinning on the, the formation lap and then not being able to race uh, in, in the wet was quite a, a big blow, shall we say, to Prost's reputation with uh, with the, the Italian media and there's always looking for scapegoats when things go wrong so all these cracks are starting to appear and you can paper over a lot of cracks with success which they didn't have so there's no means to kind of get this all all under control and I, and I think you're at a point there where we talked about this on the first episode you need that strong leadership to come and say right we know this guy Prost's important say a few nice things about him fine but you also need to go in there and get this completely under control and make sure that the driver feels his ideas are being taken on board to a, a sufficient level and to make sure that there's some kind of united way forward. Because at this point, they should be thinking, right, yeah, we're not going to win the championship in 91. We may not win a race in 91, but we need to be there in 92. And obviously, I think time will show that that was very, very much not the case. But again, you've got this thing of nobody taking control and you can't blame Prost for kind of wanting to build his control and get and get his opinion across because he felt there was just this sort of disarray going on uh, on the Ferrari side. And if, if the team's not not pulling together, you you want to see that happen. Any top driver will try and and do that. And I just you just don't see any sign of things getting in control. They, they do a new car and hope that would solve everything. And briefly, it looks like it will, and it doesn't. And then everything's just just going wrong. But I think you you. In part one, you mentioned how 1990 was was this anomaly. And I was just thinking about it, looking at looking through some of the results while you were speaking. You're absolutely right because actually, when you look at you know 92 and 93, you know 91 was actually quite a good season compared to those two years for Ferrari. Um, 
But, you know, 94, 95, very similar to 91. Okay, they won a race in 94 and 95, but on the whole, you know, the odd podiums and there or thereabouts, but not really a championship challenger. So, and you go through the through the 80s and, you know, very much so. So, yeah, I think really so much of this whole Prost and Ferrari 91 story was was you know unraveled because of the expectations from this from this outlier of a season really yeah very much so Ferrari expects to win and often you know through history it it wins left or less often than it should and certainly fails more often than it than it succeeds but that period in 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 the eighties, you know, Alboreto was sort of a title contender in eighty five, but but trailed off. Eighty two and eighty three were pretty good seasons. Eighty two obviously was a ridiculous season. All sorts of terrible things going on there. They would have won the drivers' championship that year with with one of the two drivers had they had they still been running to the end of the, of the season. Eighty three they could have won with uh, obviously Arno and Tombe. About that five year. different people could have won eighty three. Yeah, exactly. But they did win the constructors' uh, championship. But yeah, this wasn't a team that was used to winning. And it's interesting if you look about this. We, we talk about more this. We talk more about this on part one with the Mansell and, and Prost relationship. But you see this sequence of events. You have Alberetto in, and it's his team, and then Berger comes in, and sort of it becomes his team. And Alberetto gets a bit irritated, and then Mansell comes in alongside Berger, and Berger gets a bit irritated because of that. And then Prost comes in, and you've just got this sequence. It's like, come on, this this is a this is a systematic pattern they're not all problem individuals and, and and troublemakers so again it comes down to that get a handle on it and this failure you mean, you mean like Vettel thought it was his team and now Leclerc's come in well there's a yeah there's a, there's a little bit of that but at least at least Vettel had his run didn't they you know uh, so it, it was it was undisputedly his team for for some years so these things do arise kind of organically that that obviously the, the Vettel Leclerc thing is Freud made the right move by putting them together and and, and this happens but just this this sort of chaos going on for this team that consistently had good budgets in that period it always had the prestige it 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 should have been able to to compete and the whole point of Prost when he came in was right he was the guy to galvanize the team around and you know he was really motivated talking back to 1990 here because of what had happened with McLaren he wanted to win you know he was in tears after his first win for for Ferrari at uh, Interlagos early in, in 1990 so Perhaps the the decline was even more frustrating because the belief that just having Prost there in itself was enough. And then when these things are going wrong, they just think, well, Prost's a bit annoyed, but if we sort of say a few nice things and just accept that he's doing well, maybe everything will sort itself out without ever going in and saying, right, what is the fundamental problem here? And the only time they ever did that, it's like, right, let's change this. Let's change that. Even in this period, you have a successful 90 season and you have there's several fundamental changes. At the start of 1990, you've got Barnard, you've got Duran... By the time you get to ninety one, they're gone, and that's the that's the fundamental problem. And then the management management changes early in ninety one around Monaco time, wasn't it? They changed. So you're just looking and you think you're just looking in the wrong place. You're doing all these things. It's not like they're not doing anything. It's just everything they're doing is is just scattergun and and scapegoating and and madness. It's kind of in that regard, it's almost. Ferrari at its worst. It's no coincidence that it took someone like Jean Tot and his sheer strength of personality to build up that team, bring in the right people, build it around Schumacher as the driver to actually get Ferrari to unlock its potential. And the length of time it took that to work tells you how much of a mess they had to sort out. I tell you what, Glenn, you you know, you did most of the research, it has to be said, for this podcast. But in that process of reading about this era and arguably until until sort of ninety two do you not respect Jean Todd as a team boss more than ever oh, before? 
Absolutely. I mean, it, yeah, you have to... We all know the story that he went in, they weren't very good, he made them a lot better. But when you go back and you look at how chaotic it was, and it was week to week, and obviously back then, stories didn't travel around the media in quite the same way. So quite often, maybe things would seep out from Italy. And a lot of the coverage was led by what was being leaked to the Italian media, which was another problem in Ferrari as well. And you just think, like, if an F1 team... You know, we criticise Ferrari now for narrowly missing out on championships, but they're a well-oiled machine in comparison to what they were sort of 30 years ago. So I'm sure at some point we'll get into how Todd did rebuild that team, but we'd probably need a whole series to get through what he had to do in those first couple of years. See, there's another podcast, isn't it? The team, you know, team principals who showed strength of character or or the big turnarounds. Mm. You know, you've got your... Ron Dennis is Frank Williams, Sean Todd. These are iconic people, yeah. aren't they? Because they, they, you know, back then you used to be able to run a team really almost from top to bottom. Back to 91, though. Um, we all know that Ferrari doesn't win any races this season. That's that's not a spoiler. But, Karun, we were talking before we started recording this episode about the fact that Ferrari could have won at Spa. And it actually could have won with Alessi because Prost broke down very early on. But... Alessi had a real chance. I think he might have even been in the lead when he broke down. Uh, Prost retires on lap three, and he's already slagged off the Italian media. And after this race, he slags off the French media, saying they are making conflict in the stories they are writing. But uh, we'll get on to unreliability, because I know, Karun, when you were looking back at the results, you couldn't believe how many times the thing blew up, basically. But um, in that Prost book that we've referenced before, and uh, I, w- I believe you've got one on your shelf, Karine. Which so. I haven't yet read, but I'm going to now that you've <laughs> you've mentioned it so much. I've, I've got to read it. Yeah, it's a really good read. Uh, Steve Nichols is quoted in that, and uh, he talks about the Ferrari engine. And uh, he says, the first year I was there in 1990, it all went better than expected. Um, but then after that, the whole thing was a disaster, which comes back to what we've just been talking about. And you couldn't believe it could happen in a team like Ferrari. And he says the engine was horrendous. And he was talking about drivability. He said you'd come back from a test and tell the engine people about the impossible drivability. And they'd look at you and say, well, it's not like that on the dyno. And he just he couldn't believe what he was hearing from them. And he said back then at Ferrari, the engine just meant one number, which was peak power on the dyno. He talked about drivability power through the range and you could see in their eyes that you just weren't getting through to them was this an example of ferrari being behind culturally we know enzo ferrari had famously tried to resist the rear engine revolution not believing that you could put i think it was was it you can't put the cart behind the horse i think was one of the quotes that he said did i get that wrong ed horse behind the cart cart. yeah the cart was already behind the horse that's where he wanted it to stay Um, But at this point, they've got a V12 engine and they just want it to scream and produce as much peak power as possible. But is that a sign, again, of a team that wasn't adapting to how F1 was moving on? Yeah, I mean, these are sort of philosophical decisions that need to be made by management. And this all of this comes back to just management, isn't it? You know, if you've got a guy who is heading the engine department, looking around and saying, hang on a second, that Renault V10 and the Williams... They're winning a lot these days. Hmm, they've got really good drivability. That's the, all the comments that people talk about. It's got fantastic drivability. Uh, that Brazilian chap, he's quite good, but he's complaining about drivability in the, on the Honda side. So clearly this is something that's important to success. You know, it just, it, some of the stuff is just 
you know, looking at the opposition and looking at what other people are doing, as well as listening to your own drivers, really, um, and and trying to to adapt and be flexible. And, you know, that hasn't changed from 1961 to 1991 to 2020. You know, there's needing to be flexible, needing to be innovative and, and move with the times and look at the opposition and learn learn from the opposition as well. Again, it comes down to the way Formula One's one was changing in its period. And that goes back. You look back to the to McLaren with the, the tag Porsche engine and the way John Barnard was really working with with Porsche in terms of the packaging and that kind of thing. So that the whole kind of 360-degree packaging, the whole thing becomes important. And it's not just about you do this, you do that, you do the other. And if you've got a fundamentally fragmented and politics-ravaged team, then you're going to struggle to make those decisions sensibly. And Ferrari should have been in the most wonderful position to do this because it was the it was the sole full-blown works team. It's kind of all in-house. They should have, like Mercedes does now, they should have been able to absolutely optimise everything the way they wanted to, but because they, they couldn't do it, they weren't structured in that way, it's, uh, it, it, it's holding them back. And in the past, you could get away with things being a little bit more fast and loose, shall we say, but as understanding grows so things become more complex and also those bigger strategic decisions become important I mean, for example they they deferred some wind tunnel work they were doing in 1990 they're concentrating on other things and this is just at the point where we're really moving into the aero era in formula one and i know obviously wings are on the the car from 68 but it's sort of in the late very end of the 80s and then the first part of the 90s that we're coming to the aero, new era aren't we exactly a new is the the sort of the the, the, the poster child, for want of a better word, for, for that era when it's just becoming aero-dominant and they're not really getting that. It's about a car that works aerodynamically, not just on peak downforce, but through a whole range of uh, conditions. The same with the engine. You want the drivability, you want the, the, the performance. But if you haven't got the leadership to do that and all you've got is just do better, do better, do better, you're just creating situation where where things run free and we've seen this with formula one teams more in more recent years when they've they've been fragmented you know actually mercedes is a great example once that team back in the day it was very political and there was far too much sort of trying to avoid the blame falling on on your department rather than some other some other part and for always just a, a, a great example of this and maybe there was one there was once a time when a driver could galvanize a team but that and, and be the focal point. And that's kind of what they expected Prost to do. So perhaps, actually, at the heart of this, Ferrari almost underestimated, or overestimated, rather, what, what the driver can bring. You know, they can they can drive the car, they can be a focal point, they can pull the team together to a certain amount, but, you know, they could, just as you can't beat the laws of physics on the track, you can't beat the laws of physics when it comes to a, to a team like that. And so did they expect too much of Prost that he was this magic bullet? if they sort of double down on they'll they'll be fine whereas Prost himself was saying well I need you to do all this and have this right attitude so if I say this isn't right we need to do something about it because that is what will have happened at McLaren one more thing from from Nichols on where Ferrari were maybe a little bit behind the times in car preparation and setting up the car uh he says that at McLaren uh, around this time the difference between each spring was uh was 25 pounds which was a, a difference of 2.5% for each increment, basically. So the amount of options you had in uh, with the springs that you would use in the car. And he said when he got to Ferrari, the difference between each spring was £250. So he said, basically, you'd be trying to set the car up at Ferrari and you'd just fly past the sweet spot because it's somewhere in that huge sort of 25% chasm that you've created compared to what McLaren are doing. 
It's just, that's just bonkers. I, I find that story extraordinary. 250 pounds is a massive amount in a race car. I mean, for... I don't really know how to explain that to people at home, but you know, often when you'd make a setup change, even in um even in a Formula Three car, if I think back to my time there, you'd change fifty pounds at a time. And, and you know, you if you felt you wanted a massive change, you'd change a hundred pounds. So yeah, <laughs> changing two hundred and fifty pounds at a spring is is huge. Yeah, it's monstrous. And you wonder how you could ever get a good uh setup. And actually when Nichols explained that to Ferrari and he said, we need to do this differently, they said, okay, we'll, uh, they'll be ready in three months, which again, isn't a very F1 timeline. Now, uh, at the start of September, um, Prost reiterates that he is going to stay at Ferrari for 1992. So obviously all the things that have gone on through the summer have hopefully been patched up, but he admits that he's had discussions with Ligier about setting up uh, or being part of an all French team. Prost talks about this in his book. I don't want to ruin it all for you, Karun, before you read it. But um, he says the main thing he talks about is actually in January 92, after he's been fired. Um, but he says that he talked on and off a lot with Ligier. And he said the deal came very close to happening. For me, it was important to have stability in the team. So I wanted a five-year deal to be secure. I felt this was necessary to be competitive and to have enough money to get the right people in to do it properly. We weren't fooling ourselves. If we couldn't get the money needed to take the team to the top level, then why do it? He said, if I was going to have my own team, I wanted it to be based in France and to be using a French engine. But I never liked the idea of setting up a French national team. In the end, we couldn't find the right solution. Now, Prost end up owning that team in 97. And actually, it all starts to go wrong when they put the French engine in it for 98, which was the Peugeot. But let's just detour for a moment. Can you imagine a scenario where Prost would have ended up racing for Ligier in 92? I mean, we know that he tested the car. I mean, and in the tests, um, you know, if you speak to people like Frank Durney, they'll tell you about how he was unbelievably quick compared to their race drivers, you know, over a second, second and a half sometimes. So, yeah, uh, but I think in the end, and I'm slightly getting ahead of myself, but, you know, I think Prost not being a Ferrari in 92 is the best thing that happened to him. Because effectively, he was able to get himself that seat at Williams and, and win the fourth world championship, even though he drove at sort of 90% for 93. So, you know, in, in the end, for him, it all worked out probably for the best. He had a much less st stressful time, really, at Williams um, and, and won the championship. Prost at Ligier would have been brilliant, wouldn't it, though? That would have been a, a great story. That that. 92 Prost, uh, I'm, get Prost. I'm getting ahead of myself there. Obviously, that team did become Prost later. Later on, he made the rather unwise decision to, to get involved down the line. But that, that 92 Ligier isn't very fondly remembered as a good car. It wasn't very successful. But actually, it had a reasonable turn of pace over the season. Prost showed potentially, when he tested, to have a greater turn of pace than the, the drivers who were in the car, Boots and, and Comas in, in 92. So it could have it could have been interesting. It's it's quite fun to think about it because there was this push from the the French government to get involved in it, and obviously you had Renault and Elf and was all these French companies getting involved, and Prost as the focal point, and there was always potential. You never know; maybe actually he could have been a galvanising force there, and that, and that team might have uh, come together. But then you've got the question of whether it would get ravaged by politics, etc. Again, but I think it'd have been fascinating, wouldn't it, to see a, a world champion like that going into a car a car like that and seeing where they got to. But remember in that period, Ligier wasn't at all bad. The 93 car was pretty strong with a, 
with the Renault engines. 94 wasn't a good year, despite the fact they got two drivers on the podium at Hockenheim. And then 95, it wasn't too bad. Obviously, they, by that time, you're, you've got the links with Benetton and, 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 and CWR. So... Even the 97 it's, car, if yeah, you if you yeah, go good, all yeah. the way, if you want to keep going, you know, it's the 96 car was not, you know, it was decent. And you you imagine a driver like Prost, in that era, the drivers were massively powerful in attracting people, weren't they? You know, if you had a Prost or a Mansell or a Senna or a PK, you would attract a John Barnard or a Gordon Murray. You know, you'd attract a top design team and engineering team. Look at Schumacher and Ferrari, you know, as soon as he went, then Ross and Rory Byrne and all these other people went along. So, but yeah, I mean, I suppose that's a whole other podcast in, <laughs> in some it's, ways, isn't it? It's one of those things. The fact that Prost didn't go with Ligier suggests that he didn't see that potential. But I do wonder if, say, a younger Prost, maybe you had that drive, I think might, there was might have had the desire to take that punt and, and, yeah. really, and really go for it. Whereas I think, as we saw with what he did when he came back with Williams, that was kind of right, I'll turn up. I'll turn up for and I'll do a year. I'll win the championship without trying too hard, and then he he went off to, after a year anyway because they were bringing they were bringing Senna in. So uh, I think the politics of France uh, or the French organizations and stuff as well. I think for him having just come out of the the Ferrari, you know, fire jumping into the French frying pan with with all of that may have just just put tipped him over the edge at that point. So uh, I think that must have played a part in the decision. Yeah, maybe a year out was was the best course of action. And of course, Corinne, you mentioned there that it was the best outcome for Prost because he ended up in the 93 Williams. It was probably the best outcome as well because he didn't have to drive the 92 Ferrari. Now, the silly season got crazy in September and October of 91 because there are reports that Michael Andretti is talking to Ferrari. Now, he's been a test driver for McLaren in 91, but I don't think he drove the car much beyond pre-season before Senna turned up, effectively. Uh, he's... Spotted at Maranello, but he says he's there with his dad, Mario, to collect an F40. Should point out, in 91, he was the IndyCar champion. Yes. You know, so he, he was right up there. His stock was high. Yeah. And um, there is, the talk continues through September and into October. Uh, Prost upsets Ferrari because um, he gets asked about Senna closing in on his number of victories. And Prost responds saying, I'm hardly going to win any more races driving what I'm in. But he says that he's still committed to Ferrari. Then Michael Andretti says in America um, that he's interested in the Ferrari drive if it's available. But by this point, he's already signed a new contract with Carl Haas to stay in IndyCar. So he says it would be up to them to negotiate with my IndyCar team. And Carl Haas says, uh, I don't believe that's going to happen. One final detour before we get into where this goes completely wrong. Michael Andretti had a tough time in driving a half-decent McLaren in 1993. How bad would his F1 experience have been if he'd come in and driven the 92 Ferrari? But in some ways, I think it, it would have helped him. Because, you know, in 93, he's come in from driving big, heavy Indy cars into arguably the most technologically advanced chassis, you know, in terms of... F1 that they had been with the active suspension. The MP48 was a very good chassis. It had an underpowered engine, but the chassis was fantastic. And he was up against Ayrton Senna. Uh, the qualifying rules at the time were really tricky for him. Only 12 laps allowed in the whole session. So there were so many things that that didn't help um, Michael's, the, the impression that Michael created, let's say. And, you know, when you talk to Mario about it, and 
obviously Mario's a bit biased, well, quite biased in, in, in terms of, of that. But he's also quite objective about, you know, not quite objective. I say he's, he's, he's quite, I don't know the right word. He, he's quite, ref, he's in a, in a reflective mood in terms of what went wrong, actually, for Michael in that era. And actually, I think if Michael had come into Ferrari in an uncompetitive Ferrari, he's sort of under the radar. You're not under pressure to beat Ayrton Senna. You're up against, um, you know, Larini or Morbidelli or Alesi at that time. Um, you sort of go under the radar and learn about Formula One before maybe he got his opportunity in a better Ferrari or a McLaren later on. It might have been a slightly better situation for him. I suspect still some of the limitations would have applied. Obviously, famously, he was commuting, as it were, for, from the US, which was reckoned to put him at a bit, a bit of a disadvantage. But what happened with Andretti and McLaren? There's some people who just remember, oh, Michael Andretti just wasn't any good, but Michael Andretti was an absolutely brilliant driver, perfectly capable of being extremely good in Formula One. I can't imagine it would have gone as bad as it would have done at, at, at McLaren. But it's, uh, it's interesting because actually... Andretti, uh, Michael Andretti felt he, he had a verbal agreement with with Haas that he could go to Formula One if he got the opportunity, because uh, in fact Andretti talked about the possibility of driving the Benetton at the end of 1990 when Nanini was injured, the seat that Moreno eventually took. But apparently Carl Haas by that point had forgotten about the uh, the verbal agreement. Verbal agreements not worth the paper they're printed on, is it? As as it were. So, uh, but but this also tells you that Ferrari's all a little bit of a mess across the board. Really, they're looking at they're sort of half looking at drivers to replace who knows who, and all this going on in the background. I'm sure there was there was factionalism going on by this point. There had been people trying to replace Prost, people who didn't think Prost should be replaced, who were then sort of leaking information. So you just got this growing cycle. It gets, it gets more and more energy in it, the whole thing. you know, To, to break the bronze that, that tied Prost and Ferrari together would take quite a big break. But all this kind of, almost sort of potential energies building up within Ferrari for something absolutely seismic to uh, to happen. And yeah, looking at drivers like Michael Andretti would have just been another small part. And you you can't necessarily pick out which is the sort of straw that broke the camel's back, as it were, but it's just building up to this critical mass. Well, let's reach critical mass, shall we? We'll start at the Spanish Grand Prix. First Grand Prix at uh, Barcelona, I believe, for track that still hosts the race today and it's changeable weather at the start of the race and Prost wants to start the race on slicks and Ferrari won't let him uh, so he comes in after falling back at the start and charges back through to second having made the call after about three laps that he was going to change tyres anyway but he's really critical of the team at this point and he says that they wouldn't let him start on slicks because of the stupid pressure the team is under and he talks about it being afraid of taking brave decisions and in a lot of the reports of these comments at the time, there are suggestions in the paddock that the Ferrari race team, when it's away, is operating in total fear of the watching eyes back in Italy. We were watching it on the TV, you know, the bosses, the media, the fans. Was this just one of another of Ferrari's huge cultural problems at the time, that there wasn't enough focus on what they should have been doing? They're too worried about what everybody thinks they're doing. Uh, to me, it's a, an astonishing decision because if Alan Prost in 1991 wants to start on slicks when it's damp, you let him because this is the guy who didn't race at, in, in Australia in 89 at the end of the season because it was too wet. The guy had gone off at the, uh, on the formation lap in, in San Marino. So he was not a guy who took a big risk in wet conditions. Actually, a very quick wet weather driver despite the fact that in his later years he was, was a bit cautious. But to me, it's absolutely crazy not to, not to back your driver. And if you're hoping that this superstar driver will, will make things work for you, you're not in a championship fight. Spanish Grand Prix, unlike now, was towards the end of the season. So there's only a few rounds left. 
So what on earth are they doing? Not letting him do it. You know, at worst, if you're the team manager, you say, I'll let him start on slicks. He binned it on the first lap. Idiot, his fault. If you're that worried politically, blame the three times world champion you've got in the car who's made the call. So it's not even sensible politically, but it just shows that the politics by this stage have gone, gone so over the top that nobody really knows what they're doing. And there's just this sort of paralysis, uh, paralysis going on. Imagine, again, sliding doors moments. If Prost had won that race off the back of that decision, might that have changed things? Who knows? They might have already been going down this, this line, but you know, a victory would pay for over a lot of cracks, and at least they could say, yeah, we're getting there. That means it's almost time for the Japanese Grand Prix, which is, of course, Prost's final race for Ferrari and where he says his infamous truck comment, which we'll explain in some detail in a minute. Quick bit of news that broke before that race, though, was that Ivan Capelli had signed a deal, a contract with Ferrari. Now, you talked about the scattergun approach earlier. They've signed up Capelli here, but they'd say that it's not to replace Prost and that he will either drive for Ferrari if he's needed in 92. Otherwise, he'll drive a Ferrari-powered Scuderia Italia car in 92. So at this point, Prost gets asked about that and refuses to comment. So we get to Suzuka. Prost finishes fourth, and we all know, effectively, he refers to the car as a truck, and supposedly that's what he gets fired for. Now, I once had the pleasure of interviewing Alan about this, and when I got to having to ask him about the truck comment, the first thing he said to me was, that comment didn't happen the way you have been told it would have happened. And I thought, what on earth is he talking about? But you go back and research it, and after he finishes fourth, the quote is, it was like a horrible truck to drive, no pleasure at all. The context that gets forgotten over and over again when that quote is used is that he said that because his shock absorbers had failed early in the race, so he had heavy steering. Now, to be fair, at the time, not too much is made of that comment. It's just, you know, that's what Prost said because his shock absorbers had, had failed. But these days, if we talk about that comment, that is the moment, isn't it, Karun? That's what got Alain Prost fired by Ferrari. He called the car a truck. But it's amazing when you go back and look in more detail, and Alain, of course, remembers this very well himself even today if you ask him that that wasn't the case. And it's, it's, a, it's probably the most famous example of things getting lost in translation and getting you know, completely exaggerated over time as well, isn't it? Mm. You know, as you said, at the time, it was seen as a fairly innocuous comment about an issue that somebody had with a broken shock absorber on their car. And over time, it's just exploded into this whole other thing. And what's actually more interesting is something else Prost said that weekend where he, he did take a swipe at Ferrari, at Suzuka, saying that nobody was listening to him about the defects of the car. And he says that Senna is winning the world championship again because of the positive attitude of an English team like McLaren. And then he says an Italian team is strictly negative. So that feels to me more like something you might get fired for. And then we get to the Tuesday before the Australian Grand Prix at Adelaide and that's when news breaks that Prost has left Ferrari with immediate effect. He releases a statement saying the matter is in the hands of his lawyers, but he does say that he is relieved that what has been a very unsatisfactory season has been brought to an end, and he expresses a desire to keep racing in F1 in 92. Uh, Claudio Lombardi, who's in charge of Ferrari at the time, says, uh, we were very happy with the performance of Alan. He's a very good driver and a fantastic test driver but his behaviour during the season has not been at the level that Ferrari would like from a top driver. His behaviour inside and outside the team meant that Ferrari had to stop the relationship. 
And then he gets asked, why not end the relationship at the end of the season? And he says, in the last week, the behaviour of Alain Prost was really worse and worse. So Ferrari took this decision. So I guess that's why people attribute it to the truck comment, because he said it was something that had built up and happened in the last week. But was this actually just a reflection that Prost had been getting more and more upset about what was going on behind the scenes and Ferrari had eventually reached a point where they've actually had enough of his behaviour off the track as much as anything that was going on at the races? I think it's all just come to a, a peak and fallen apart, hasn't it? In terms of, speci- I don't think there's one specific comment or, or bit of behaviour that, that, that it, it had run its course. You know, there was talk before the race in Japan. I'd look at the uh, the, the BBC coverage and Murray Walker's talking about this before the, the race. Will this be his last race for for uh, Ferrari anyway? So there's already speculation and rumour that he might not be in the grid in, uh, in Adelaide for the season finale in 91. So... Yeah, the, the truck quote is a is a nonsense. That's not a good reason. I think it's just a a series of things. And obviously, there was a factionalism going on inside Ferrari. Prost himself was trying to build himself a bit of a stronger position. Obviously, the other faction that kind of had control wanted him out because this trouble would have continued. Should, should we say? And I think it just completely broken down. And everyone was thinking this is this is utterly pointless. And obviously, when you get a contract ending like that, it's helpful to have some comments or specific things so there's no financial problems etc et I'm aware there have been things in Formula 1 over the past 10-12 uh, years where things have happened between team and driver and then there have been disputes and then suddenly they start raking through comments made to the media and there have been things, questions I've asked that have occasionally cropped up as a sort of after the fact excuse for, for certain things going on which uh, which certainly weren't the, the reason for it so yeah I think it, it's just it's this it's built and built and built and built and built it's just not working and they've just got to to get away from each other and uh, and move on the, the the great irony about it is actually is that had Prost gone to Adelaide I'm sure he wouldn't have started the race anyway because obviously it was the shortest race in world championship history because of the rain he hadn't started the 89 race perfectly understandably that was of course in 89 the race where Senna went on the back of uh, Brundles Brabham and crashed out of the race 91 was a was a mad race that was uh, that was red flagged and uh, yeah Morbidelli came in got got half a point for sixth place actually I think he was up to third when the race was red flagged so he's a bit disappointed my favorite fact though about this is that Johnny Morbidelli as a result he went from driving a Minardi to driving a Ferrari so that meant he went from a car that was able to qualify eighth at Suzuka into a Ferrari that was able to qualify eighth in Adelaide which is just brilliant you so it says everything about about Ferrari at that point that you get promoted from a Minardi to a Ferrari and you're still there eighth <laughs> row of the grid even though he was doing a pretty good job so uh, yeah just uh, <laughs> just a, what a mess you can understand Prost's frustration can't you you know in the previous eight seasons seven times he'd finished first or second in the world championship you know 87 was the anomaly where the where the honda engines were unbelievably quick but yes you know seven out of eight years before that you've either been world champion or finished second he's won a race in every one of the previous 10 years he's competed in f1 Uh, you know that was he he was a standout driver of that mid 80s era between let's say the louder years and the and the Senna and the Senna era so and then he suddenly got this car where he's finishing fifth in the championship he's got 34 points on the board and he's thinking what is you know what is going on more worryingly he was looking at it I think behind the scenes all of the mess that was going on and probably thought hang on 92 is not looking very good either so you could see the frustration from his standpoint and he was still driving well. Prost is a high-class driver. There's this kind of re- retrospective 
judgment of him that sort of says he wasn't really trying by 91. But 1990 was probably his best season in terms of his performances behind the wheel. He was very, very strong. 1991, he was still doing, he was still doing well. He was still, he wasn't turning up and trudging around and qualifying 18th or anything. He was actually trying. And you look at it and you think, well, actually, Ferrari, you had Alan Prost, who was still at or near the peak of his powers. He was the guy to build the team around. And all these external problems that got plugged into it, it just shows you it's a team that's not not mature and ready enough to, to do it. So for all you can talk about Prost as being political or whatever, the, the, the fault lies with Ferrari because it's not like they they went out that they they went out with another driver and did brilliant. I remember I've spoken to Ivan Capelli about no, he had a disastrous season in '92. He was dropped with two races to go for Lorini. I think he only scored about three points. Capelli, a very good driver, almost won the 1990 French Grand Prix, which I'm obliged to mention, one of my favourite races. But Capelli just said, like in Ferrari, when things aren't working, it just becomes horrendous, and it's so hard to kind of get out of that that spiral. And Prost probably saw that and thought, I, I don't I don't need to be part of this. I think you said earlier, Karim. Yeah, having a year off, doing nothing, and then turning up and nicking a fourth title with uh, with Williams without having to break a sweat was probably uh, quite an appealing career decision. Yeah, I think it's pretty clear that Prost had worked out Ferrari were on a on a downward spiral by this point, and he he's, he summarises his two years there in his book, saying the first year was fantastic. In my opinion, it was my best year as a driver. I liked the car and the relationship with the people, the engineers, everybody was really good. The only problem was the politics behind everything became a bit too much. And he says, in the space of two years, you can have the good and the bad. That's typical Ferrari. He said, it was a shame that there were these extremes. I was experiencing a team in a country where when everything goes well, it gives you such a lot. But when it goes wrong, it's terrible. Now, this is the interesting bit, I think. He says, maybe the mistake I made was believing I could change the mentality, the way they work and the way they approach the problems. It changed a little bit in 1990. And in 91, it changed back to what it had been and more. So I think, Karun, that picks up on what Ed's talking about, that, you know, Ferrari had Alain Prost. He was trying to sort them out and make them like McLaren, but they just either weren't capable or were resistant to that change. There's a subplot to this, isn't there? Because isn't there a story about Prost being potentially offered a a managerial This is the very next part of the script. Oh, right, okay. This shows that I am not looking at the script. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, and, and, and actually... You know, I, I don't know if that would have been the right thing to do anyway, mm. to be honest, because, you know, being a being a driver come team boss can work, but you need a really good structure around you. And as we've talked about, I think, over the last two podcasts, that wasn't the case at Ferrari at that time. And, and they needed, you know, they needed somebody full time on it. They couldn't have the guy, you know, putting his helmet on and disappearing off in the car. Yeah, I think there's a reason you don't see too many, should we say, player managers in uh, in F1. And yeah, Prost has said uh, previously that um, there were people in Ferrari who wanted him to become sporting director for 92 whilst driving. And he said that the negotiations for that were advanced. But he said that didn't please everybody in the team. So those who wanted him out, in his words, cooked up a story to get rid of him. But then when I spoke to him about this, it was in 2013. And he said... Uh, don't forget that the guys who fired me got fired themselves two weeks later and then Luca de Montezemolo properly took over Ferrari. So the place was an absolute mess. And I think you're right, Karun, that he probably dodged a bullet because imagine being not only being the lead driver, but also being in charge of Ferrari when it's produced that horrendous 92 car. 
So let's let's finish up. Prost is out. We don't need to keep talking about it too much more. But let's get a summary from both of you. Just looking back at all the reasons we've found for why this relationship broke down. I think Ed, you've already hinted at this, but if you ha- can you pick one side that is to blame, or is or are both parties at fault? I think ultimately you've got to blame the team. You know, Prost didn't forget how to drive, did he? You know, between the end of ninety and the beginning of ninety one. He showed in races like Magnico. I think there were there were certain other races where they had half a chance Spa as well. You know, he was he was up there. To, okay, the engine blew on lap three, but he was quick in qualifying. And you know, he hadn't forgotten how to drive. And as he did display in the Tessie de Belligier at the end of the year, and again coming back with Williams in '93, he was still very quick when he when he was in the car and things were working fine without the politics. So you'd have to say that. You know, out of the two parties, one of them could still remember how to do their job. Um, so you'd have to say it's the other side. You know, the, the management and the politics of the team at that time clearly, you know, made a made a big mess of things. I'm sure when Alan looks back, he'll think, oh, there's a few little things I might have done differently. But, you know, this, this I agree completely with Karina. It, it lies with the team. And the very fact that there were those who were thinking about, well, maybe we should make him sporting director or, or team boss while he's in the car. It's like they realised they needed to run the team properly to get the best out of this brilliant driver. But, he's, you know, he's he's a driver. He can't do it. You know, you can't you can't play centre forward and be the manager of the team these days. And in football, you know, player managers are rare for a reason. And the driver won't have that 360-degree view. So, yeah, it, I think ultimately they had one of the greatest Grand Prix drivers of all time still performing very, very well, and they did not deliver. And had they done what they what Prost wanted and created the right culture and fast-moving and respond to good constructive feedback rather than all running around trying to consolidate positions or playing politics, then probably things would have been very, very different. You can't say his path wasn't wasn't the right one so yeah this is uh this is on ferrari ferrari was not a team that was ready and it would take john tot and that whole revolution through the mid 90s and in fact through the late 90s as they were still building up to get that team where it needed to be culturally corporately engineering wise design wise research and development wise to make that team ready to deliver the level of performance expected from ferrari you can't just throw a driver into a half decent car or a, or a half-baked car, rather. You can't just drop a driver into a half-baked car and expect them to do well. That would have been the equivalent of Prost driving for Ligier in 92 and thinking that would solve all of Ligier's weaknesses and maybe winning championships. It just doesn't work like that. It certainly doesn't work like that now, and it, and it wasn't working then because Formula 1 was changing. Yeah, I think if Prost was guilty of anything, he was maybe too honest in the media, but as a journalist, I'm never going to complain about anyone doing that. So there you have it. It took us two episodes, but we've got to the end of the Prost-Ferrari saga and we've hopefully shed some light on some of the forgotten parts of the stories. And that's what we'll be trying to do with Bring Back V10s over the next few weeks for our first series. We've already learned our lesson personally about how long we should uh, structure one of these episodes for and we'll try not to make too many of them span a year because it takes far too long to talk about. But thanks for joining us for episode two. Don't forget to get in touch with at We Are The Race on social media and let us know what you think of the series and what you want us to talk about in the future. Keep an eye out for episode three, which will be following this one, where we'll be telling the story of the unraced McLaren MP4 18 of 2003, a car Adrian Newey perhaps likes to forget. Anyway, that one will be another fascinating story of failure in Formula One, and we'll see you very soon to talk about that.